So last week as we started this series that we're calling Faith Foundations, if you were here or if you weren't, a uh, quick review of the, the primary illustration that Pastor Italiano shared with us last Sunday. He first showed us a picture of the still standing, still leaning tower of Pisa. And his illustration was trying to point out that a foundation is the most important thing when it comes to any building. Skyscraper, house, tower in Italy, foundation is absolutely critical to make sure that you have your foundation correct because if your foundation is off, if it's weak, if it's cracked, everything else built on top of it, no matter how correct and perfect, is in complete and utter jeopardy. Foundations are critical. And that's one of the reasons why when we have people who come in and some of you said, you know, I really want to think, join this church. I want to become a part of this family of believers that we call Trinity Lutheran Church. That we don't just simply say, well, here's a connection card and check this box, talk with pastor, and that's it. You're good. Great. Now you're a member. No, it's, uh, it's a class that we call starting points. Because what we want to do is make sure that you understand not just what our church believes, not just what Lutherans say, but we want to go to the Bible and say, what in the world does it mean to be a Christian? What are the foundations, if you will, that set up our faith? And it's not just for new members. Every good inspector, every home inspector or building inspector, what do they tell you to do? Keep current on your foundation. Make sure you continue to check your foundation because over time, if your foundation starts to crack, you need to address it. And as Christians, that's what we constantly want to do. We never say, oh, I graduated from this section of knowledge. No, we, we're constantly going back to God's word, constantly examining the scriptures. What do I hear from the world? How does it line up with, with God's truth? We're constantly doing that. And it's a great illustration for where we're going in our series. It's a great illustration for how it is we become disciples of Christ and continue on as disciples of Christ. And the illustration that I want to primarily put in front of your eyes today is a compass. When was the last time you used a compass? Do you even know how to use a compass? We won't talk about that. But a compass, you know what a compass does. A compass, before things like satellites and global positioning satellites, right? Before all of those things, we had compasses to orient ourselves, right? If you, if you get plucked down in the middle of the woods or in the middle of the mountains and you have no compass, you have no cell phone, you have no, if, if you don't know what direction is what, you cannot orient yourself. Should I go this way? Should I go this way? Should I go that way? What, what side is the, someone told me after the first service, uh, you know, moss grows on the north side. And I said, but if moss because it has the tree, which is the north, right? A compass is incredibly important, right? And as I was thinking about this, it reminded me back in 2016, we did a youth rally out in Fort Collins, Colorado. And we did some hiking with some of these teens that I had taken. And uh, as we're hiking in some of these mountains, I realized, oh, hey, that's right. I have a compass right on my smartphone. So I, I, I opened up the app. And that reminded me this week, I said, yeah, I, let, me, let me pull that app up. And yesterday, literally, I was in my office and I pulled the app up and I noticed right away there's a problem. Can you guys help me out? Which direction's north? There we go. I'm glad nobody said that way. <laughs> and maybe there are a couple of people looking around. It's okay. <laughs> north is that away, right? But my compass 
Right about you, Zach. Yeah, that's, that's southwest, but according to my compass, it said, no, that's north. That's the way I should go. Uh-oh, that's not good. So then this morning, I was in here about 5, 5.30, practicing, and I did the same thing. I pulled out my compass, just like I'm doing, and it was a little better, but right about here, guys, that's where it was saying north was. Still no good, right? And now, if somehow it's calibrated, it does say this is north, but it got me thinking. If we were out there, and I pulled out my compass, and it was, for some reason, incorrectly calibrated, and I said, okay, guys, this is north, so that's how we're going to orient ourselves. But then maybe another teen got their compass out from their phone, and they said, uh, Pastor, mine says this is north. And then maybe someone else gets out their phone and says, yeah, my compass is saying this is north. Which one's right? If you don't know what direction then which one would you believe? Like, they can't all be pointing north because those are three totally different coordinates. And that would be a lot of confusion. <laughs> That'd be a lot of fear, a lot of doubt, and a lot of uncertainty in to know which direction I'm supposed to go. And I wonder if that isn't how Peter's audience was thinking that he's writing to. This is the second letter that Peter writes to his people and in this letter, if you read it from chapter 1 all the way to the end, what you would notice is that he comes out again and again and again with like one theme, warning against false teachers, against people who are going to tell you something to pull you away from the truth, to reorient you, basically a whole different compass to say, no, that's not the right way. This is the right way to go. This is the right way to go. But he's not just talking about people outside their ranks. Talking about people inside their circles, too. People who have come or will come in the future to pull them away. And that's a little scary. Because if you think about it, how do you know which one is true? Well, Peter told us this thing, so we should follow the Apostle Peter, right? No, someone from the outside says, who's that guy? Oh, please, he doesn't know what he's talking about. This! My idea is right. Your idea is not right. Maybe someone from within says, well, no, Peter's not quite right. You're definitely wrong. But this, this is how I feel we should go. So you know that if three people say they're right and true, well, they can't all be right and true. And so which one do you believe? And not just which one do you believe, but how do you know what one person says is true and what one person says is wrong. You can imagine a conversation. Well, he's Peter. He was not just a disciple, but one of the inner circle of Jesus, one of his close friends. Like, he, he knows what he's talking about. You mean the same Peter who denied Jesus three times? You mean that same Peter that you couldn't count on? I mean, I know he's a disciple and everything, but he's not Jesus. He's not perfect. So how do we know what he says has more authority and more truth than what I say or what they say or what anybody else says because he's just a man and he's a sinful human being. He's not perfect God. Now you can imagine such a hypothetical conversation, but you can certainly understand the argument because it's one that people wrestle with still today. 
how can I know that this book that we call Scripture, this Bible that is written up of a bunch of other books that were all written by men, fallible human beings, what makes this more true, more authoritative than any other book out there? Why should I listen to this more than anything else? Have you ever wrestled with that question? If you're a little skeptical or if you're just saying, I really don't know how to answer that question, so I hope nobody ever asks me that question, uh, you're in a good place today. Because what the Apostle Peter is going to do is he's going to pick up his pen and he's going to write a letter to answer not just them back then, but us today on why this thing that we call Scripture, God's Word, why it's so reliable, why it is the compass to orient your entire life around, why it is the truth in the world today. He says, and I'm going to pick it up at verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, we didn't make up this stuff. The Greek word there, cleverly devised stories, is the same Greek word, uh, mythos, myth, legends. We didn't make stuff up. We didn't write just a giant fantasy and we're trying to perpetuate a, a big story and pull the wool over everyone's eyes. No, he says, you know what we were? We were eyewitnesses. And then right after this, he goes into an eyewitness account that was so formative in Peter's life, it changed so much for him. We call it the transfiguration. Maybe you've heard of that before. Uh, what happened is when, when Jesus went up to this mountain, he took with him Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, it seems, and then all of a sudden he was transfigured. That is, his figure was changed. That is, his human nature, it's like it was peeled back, so to speak, and the divine glory of God that Jesus had all along was bursting forth. It was just coming upon them. And then Moses and Elijah... These two massive Old Testament prophets, two major figures, are standing there talking with Jesus. And if it couldn't get any better, then suddenly this cloud envelops them and this voice, this is my son. I don't have a deep enough voice to do God justice, right? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And, and Peter's taking all of this in. He says, wow. And it changed so much for him. And he says, guys, I saw it. I was an eyewitness of the God-man Jesus. But you notice he didn't say, I was an eyewitness, but we. Who's the we? He's saying, you don't have to just believe me. There are other disciples who were eyewitnesses of this. People like John, people like James, all of these other people who saw what was going on. In fact, all of the Testament, the source material, eyewitness testimony. Followers of Jesus who, who saw what they saw, who heard Jesus speak, and who wrote down everything and didn't just give their testimony, but what makes their testimony really reliable is that they, they died for it. History shows that almost all of Jesus' disciples died a martyr's death for their faith. Now, I'm sorry, if you were coming up with a cleverly devised story, if you're going to make something up, would you die for it? Like if someone put a, put a sword to your throat, if someone tied you up and was about to feed you to the lions in the Colosseum, I think self-preservation would kick in and say, the jig's up, 
all right, I made it up. I don't want to die. It was all a myth, but it was a pretty good story, huh? You, why would you die? Because it was true. And that helps us explain the Apostle Paul, too, the author of nearly half of the New Testament, who was public enemy number one to the church, the greatest enemy who wanted to, to stomp out Christianity, made it his mission to get rid of it in the church, and then what happens? He flips. The greatest enemy and the greatest missionary and who puts his life on the line in multiple occasions for the word and even dies for it. How would that happen unless it was all true? Unless he says, yeah, I was completely wrong and on my way to Damascus, I saw Jesus. And he appeared to me and he taught me the truth. Peter says, you can trust this because we saw it. And someone may say, okay, I'll give you that. You're eyewitnesses. That's fine. But eyewitness testimony isn't always the most valid thing because if we put two or three eyewitnesses in a room, they can give you the main story, but the details might be a little fuzzy. Someone might remember it one way. Someone might remember it another way. Someone might embellish the truth or put their own interpretation and spin on some of the things that happens. And let's face it, there's a lot of man-made authors in this book, right? How do we know that they didn't just embellish? How do we know they didn't just put their own spin on stuff? And it's like Peter anticipates this, and he says right in the next verse, we also have the prophetic message as something reliable, completely reliable. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, and I love this part, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? you get what he's saying? He's saying, you're right. We are humans. Human beings who wrote these things, or human beings who wrote them in the past, Moses, David, Solomon, all those people, but they didn't just sit down and say, you know, I'm just going to write a letter today. I'm just going to write what I feel God might do or what. Ha no. No, he said they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the perfect God. In other words, if you want to try to visualize this, sometimes the way I say it is God is the author, but he uses people like Moses and like David and like Solomon and Paul and Peter and John, it's like they're the collection of his pens and he picks them up and he uses them to write down the words that he wants his people to know. So in other words, it's not just like any other man-made book because the author is the perfect and infallible God and he wrote things through his pens, human beings. He says, you can trust this not just because it's eyewitness testimony, but you can trust this because this is from God. Now, I could pull up a bunch of other passages that talk about this same point. I could show you all sorts of evidence from history, uh, extant biblical sources that corroborate so well 
with the New Testament and the Old Testament, I could talk about how even right now in academia, scholars and historians will actually look at Scripture and say, you know, this is a pretty great source that helps us understand some of the other timelines of things that were going on in the world. I could do all of that stuff, but I think the main thing that when it comes to this understanding of is this word true is so what? Okay, it's true. But what does that make a difference in my life? Because if you're taking notes, maybe you can jot something like this down. Just because something is true doesn't mean it has authority in your life. You can know that something is true, but you can ignore it, or you can live by something else. What level of authority does Scripture have then in your life? Because there's all sorts of different authorities. There's all sorts of different influences that can shape you. There's all sorts of different compasses that people and you can pull out and orient your life around those things more than God. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, friends. Maybe, maybe the greatest influence and authority in your life is Friends. There's a pastor who told his teens and his confirmands year after year after year, show me your friends and I will show you your future. And I think sometimes when we hear that, maybe we envision some grumpy old fuddy-duddy of a pastor who thinks every teen is so immature and irresponsible. But he was a seasoned veteran who loved, loved, loved his teens. Loved his kids. Loved them enough to warn them what Parents know so well the influence that friends can have on a person. Because think of how powerful friendship is. Friendships and friends, what they do is they give us a sense of acceptance, right? They give us a sense of belonging, people that we can rely on, go to. And so there's this tremendous pressure to be liked. And then when you are liked and when you are accepted, there's this tremendous fear of doing something to be rejected by them. And so, I can know God's word is true, but if my friends want to do this, if my friends are, are living by this kind of compass and I, I don't align with them, I, I might get rejected, so I, so I better pull out that compass and live by that rather than the word. Maybe, maybe your authority and influence on your life is uh, culture, pop culture. That you can know God's word is true, but with all the celebrities, with Hollywood, with all the Instagram influencers where their millions and millions of followers are saying on a hot topic or what tr culture is trending right now, what the new social norm is going to be, it is, that is a huge influence on a person's life, right? That when everybody, when millions and millions and millions of people are trending this way, it is so much easier to just jump on that bad wagon and go with the flow rather than to try to swim upstream and maybe risk being labeled a bigot, maybe risk being labeled out of date, out of touch. Maybe your authority is politics and the media. Whatever the left is saying, whatever the right is saying, whatever CNN is spouting, whatever Fox News is shouting at you through the airwaves, through the TV, maybe those things and those agendas and those ideas have more to do shape your thoughts, have more to shape your actions and your words 
and the truth of God's word. Or maybe, maybe the compass that you live by is traditions. Traditions can be really good, can't they? Ethnic traditions, cultural traditions, family traditions, church worship traditions. I mean, they can go back so many generations. They can be so meaningful, so impactful. These man-made ideas that can be just chock full of meaning for you. But when change is on the horizon, when you can smell it, when you hear that dreaded C word, or when a tradition is maybe dying out, oh boy, if that is the compass that you orient your life by, I have seen families, I have seen relationships, I have seen churches wrecked and divided when people live by the tradition compass and cling so tightly to that. Maybe none of those is your compass. Maybe the authority, the influence in your life is your feelings. Don't get me started on feelings. Have you ever said before or heard someone say, well, I don't feel like God is like that. Well, I don't feel that God would do that. Well, my God would never send someone, well, my God loves people like this. Well, my God would allow, well, I know what God's word says, but this feels so right. I've never felt myself before like this at all. And if it feels so right, how could it be wrong? And I could go on and on and on and on about all these different, all these different compasses, all these different authorities. But you know what all of those things have in common? They are man-made and flawed. You can't trust them because they're consistently flawed. And I can prove it. Let me use two examples, for instance. Take culture pop culture, hopping on the bandwagon of the culture that everybody's doing it, it's got to be okay, everybody, culture is so enlightened, we are so smart, right? Then why is it that I'm going to have to explain to my kids someday segregation? Why a black person could not sit in the same area as a white person? Why black people had to be moved and pushed out and had, were treated lower than white people? Because if our society, if culture was so enlightened back when they abolished slavery, yeah, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. Why did it take so long to end segregation? And sometimes we think, oh, that was so long ago, 1964. And there were still struggles after that. Some people right here in this room can probably still remember times like that. And that culture was so enlightened back then. And, and if we, just a few generations from them, are shaking our heads and saying, oh, we are so much smarter, we know us way more than them, what do you think future generations from us now are going to look back at us in June of 2021 and say, they believe that? Oh, those guys, they were so uneducated. We are so much better than them. See, every culture thinks it's more enlightened and smarter and knows better than the previous. Let me take your feelings, for example. I told you not to get me started, but here we are, right? You think your feelings are the best way to navigate your life? Like, if there's a compass and you know the arrow always points north, I think your feelings are constantly doing this on the compass. You never know which way to go, and I can prove it. Your 15-year-old self will look back at your 10-year-old self and say, I was a dweeb. 
<laughs> I did that? I thought that was cool? I, I, oh my God, I'm so embarrassing. And then your 25-year-old self will look back at your 15-year-old self and say, I thought that was okay? I did those things? Oh, I was so idiotic. And your 35-year-old self will look back at your 25-year-old self and say, I was really immature. I, I really didn't have a clue, but now I do. And your 50-year-old self will look back at your 35-year-old self. And your 85-year-old self will look back at your 50-year-old self. And Do you get it? Like we think in the moment, oh, I, I feel like I've got it. And then we look back and say, I, I don't have a clue, but I do now. And which means your future self is looking at your present self right now saying, I'm an idiot. I didn't know what I was doing. I was so, oh, I was so clueless. And whether it's your friends, whether it's your feelings, whether it's culture, whether it's whatever it is, all of those compasses, none of them is reliable. But there's one thing that stands out from all of those things, one thing that is more accurate and more true because it is infallible, and that is God's word. Because it's from a perfect God who can't lie. So then why do we have such a hard time following it? Such a hard time orienting our lives around it? I think the biggest answer is because it means you have to get over yourself. <laughs> the reason why we have such a hard time submitting to this thing is because it means you're not the authority in your life. It means that if God created you and designed you he's god you're not he might know a little bit more about how this universe works because he made it but more importantly how you are to run your life because he made you and so then it stands to reason that when you go to his word you might come across some things some controversial stuff today that offends you that you say i, I don't like that well, everyone else is doing this, and you're saying that's wrong. Well, that's, and you have a free will. You are totally free to reject it. You are totally free to say, that's your compass, God. I'm going to go down this path instead. Just know that it's not in your best interest, and that it won't get you where you want to go or need to go. Think about it like taking care of oil on your car. Stay with me on this, okay? Anybody who has a car, you know that oil changes are vitally important. I drive a GMC Yukon XL that's over there in the parking lot. And if you were to go into this black beauty, into the passenger seat in the glove box, you would find the owner's manual, just like there is in probably every single car. And you could look in the index and say, okay, oil maintenance, and you could pull that up, and it will tell you things like, what kind of oil to put in your car, how many quarts of oil to put in your car, how often to change the oil in your car, and how to check the dipstick to make sure that oil in your car is at the proper levels. And then it gives me even things like gauges, oil pressure gauge to tell me if my oil pressure is correct. It gives you idiot lights like the check engine light that says something's wrong, you should take this thing in. It even gives me a digital display that if I push a couple buttons, it'll say 64% oil life remaining. I've got an odometer that I can hit and say, okay, I changed it here. However many miles later, I need to change it. It's got all these things that can help me maintain my oil. But I can look at those lights, at those gauges, at the thing that says change oil soon. I can look at the manual and say, 
who do you think you are, GMC, telling me how to maintain my car? Change the oil after, I'll change the oil and I want to. Six quarts of oil, four is enough. The dipstick says, it's like, whatever, I don't have to change the oil. Stop blinking at me. I'll do what I want. I'm free to do that. You know what's going to happen. <laughs> and the engine seizes up. And what, it, what would have cost me just a minor sacrifice in some oil and a filter has now cost me everything. Which is why most people I know tend to say, you know, I think I'm going to believe the manual. I think I'm going to believe the designers, the manufacturers of this car because if they built this car, this engine, I think they know a little more about how to run it and maintain it than I do. How is it any different than with God? He says, I think I know how to run your life a little bit better than you do. So why wouldn't we submit to him and his design? Scripture can be true, and we can say that all day long, but here's the thing. For Scripture to have authority in your life, you have to have humility. A beautiful, depending on how you look at it, H-word, right? Humility. Because God's Word is going to challenge you. It's going to challenge your upbringing. It's going to challenge your worldviews. It's going to challenge your thoughts, your convictions. It's going to challenge you. And when it does, when it offends you, when you say, I don't know if I agree with that, you have to have the humility that says, is this a God problem or is this a me problem? Let's see, God is perfect and loving and holy and good. Maybe, maybe the problem isn't with him. <laughs> maybe, just maybe, the problem is with me. And I need to align, I need to yield, I need to submit to him. But I guess the biggest question for all of this is why would you do it? Why would you submit your life to this book? Why would you submit your life to this God? Because he's an angry God and he has hellfire waiting for you if you don't obey. A big fear tactic? Because he knows what's best. And so I better live according to the good book and get my life along with him so that I can be good with God. I cannot say no loud enough. <laughs> the answer is so much better than that. Why would you do it? Because you don't have in Scripture just a God who knows best, but a God who is best. When you look at Scripture, you don't have an angry dictator of a God who says, obey me or else. But you have a loving God who when the first two people, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when they rebelled, when, when God said, here's what I want you to do, and they pulled out their compass and said, sorry God, we're going this way. And when they ruined God's design, not just for their lives, but for the world, God did not say, I'm done with you guys. You're on your own. God did not say, boy, girl, you done messed up and you owe me a lot now. You better make this up to me. No, instead, God came close and he said to them, you messed up. 
and here's how I am going to fix it for you. When you look at this word, when you look at this book and you open it up, you don't have a hot-headed, in-your-face God that wants to ruin your idea of fun and rob you of joy and happiness. No, you have a patient and steadfast God, a wise God, who is so patient with a, a world a people who are consistently stubborn and hard-hearted and rebelling against them and pulling out their compasses and going this way and that way and this way in pursuit of their joy, in pursuit of their happiness and failing every time to find it. And he is there steadfast with his promises. I'm here. I haven't gone anywhere. Here's my compass. Here's the way what your heart really wants, the joy, the peace, the happiness that your heart really longs for, it points to me. I'm not going anywhere. In this word, why would you want to submit to it? Not because you have a God who just loves to wield his authority over you and say, it's so good to be king. Man, poor guys, you guys just have to live. You have a God who sent his son to give up that authority. To submit to the Father and said, your will be done and humbled himself to death on a cross. Who put himself in your place, in humanity's place and said, God, do not punish them. I yield to you. Punish me. Take out your wrath and anger for the sin that you have to punish on me and not them. Why? So that that truth would set you free from the lies of this world, from the lies of your own heart that wants to pull you down any other path. This is not a self-help book to make your life just a little bit better. This is not a manual or a rule book that says, do this, don't do that. It's not a 12-step guide to a better you, no. It is so much better. It is a real-life love story of God and his unconditional love to a world, to you, who rebel and rebel and rebel and follow other ways. And he's steadfast and says, I'm still here. Who knows everything you've done, who knows all the skeletons in your closet and says, I'm not going anywhere. Why would you believe this book to be true? And more than that, more than true, why would you yield authority to it and let it be the authority in your life? Because there is no story more reliable. There is no person who has sacrificed more. And there is no God who loves you more, freer and more unconditionally than the God of the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you because without you, we are lost. And maybe there's some of us here today who are lost. We've been following other roads. We've been following other compasses. We've been trying to find something to satisfy us and fill us up. And we haven't a clue which way to go. And the world has a ton of ideas, a ton of paths, a ton of compasses for us to orient our lives around. 
And Lord, every time they fail and they never satisfy and they never get us where we really need to go, which is why you didn't just give us your son, you give us your word to point us to the truth, your truth, you, the compass that stands over and above them all, that this timeless truth of your word that has never been proven wrong, but more than that, that we see in you, in this word, you, we see a God who loves us more than anything else and who proved it by how much you were willing to pay for us. Lord, melt our hearts with that truth. Help us that we can see you and your love in this word, that you don't just know what's best, you are best for us. And use that to take us back time and time, again and again and again, every single day, to let you be the thing we want, to let you and your word be the thing that guides us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.